Yeah, I think it's it's actually like one of my favorite stories in the book. And the reason is because it, it shows you how random success can be uh, with these digital products and with even with whole companies, right? Because basically, if you were to trace PayPal back, you would trace it back to this moment of total accident and serendipity, right? Like, that's not the whole story, but it's a big part of the story. Welcome to the Manny Bernabe Show. I am your host, Manny Bernabe, and I have a very exciting guest today. We're going to cover a very um, interesting book that recently came out. But first, I want to tell you a story that I came across in reading our, our, guest, uh, our guest's new book uh, today. Um, and it, it's around uh, Peter Thiel and Elon Musk in a McLaren F1 racing to get to a meeting with a venture capitalist. And uh, Elon Musk uh, picks up Peter Thiel in his McLaren F1, which at that point is one of the fastest cars in the world, if not the fastest car in the world. There are only 100 of these are made. And they're driving together. And Peter Thiel turns to Elon Musk and says, hey, show me what this thing can do. And uh, Elon floors it. He 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 um, goes down the, the the highway. He loses control. The back end uh, uh, of the of the wheels break out. They go flying into the air. They spin around three times. Uh, they hit an embankment, and people looking at this think that for sure someone is 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 pretty badly hurt. Um, they 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 um, th- thankfully they they. Um, get out of the car accident without any major injuries. Um, and what happens next might surprise you. Uh, but for that, let's bring on our very special guest uh, on the show today. So today we have Jimmy Sunny, who is the author of a new book called The Founders, The Story of PayPal and the Entrepreneurs That Shaped Silicon Valley. It was a book that was released earlier this year. It's it's off to a, a great start. National bestseller, New York Times, Editor's Choice, uh, Financial Times, Books to Read in 2022. And um, the, the Wall Street Journal writes that this is a gripping account of PayPal's origins and a vivid portrait of the geeks and contrarians who made its meteoric rise possible. So I thoroughly enjoyed the book. I highly recommend it. I think you have to go out and get this um, right away if you're an entrepreneur, if you're a business person, or if you just like a good story. So very excited to have Jimmy on the show. So let me bring him on now. And um, hey, Jimmy, how are you, sir? Say, say hey, hi to Hey, everybody. man. How's it going, everyone? And thank you for having me. Uh, thank you for coming on the show, uh, Jimmy. Let's, let's talk about why Elon Musk and Peter Thiel are in a McLaren F1, you know, how, how do these two folks come together? Uh, because you have Elon, who's, who's, who's the founder of X.com, who wants to be the online uh, bank equivalent of Bank of America. You have Peter Thiel that has launched Confinity and is trying to make uh, Palm Pilot payment transfers possible. Why are they in the same car? Why are they heading to the same uh, meeting together? Yeah, it's a it's a great story, and you know it's a, it's an interesting place to start because like a car crash is like the metaphors abound, right? Um, but to take a step back for people who who aren't as familiar with the with the story, uh, it's actually tucked in the middle of the book. So you know when you if you buy the book and you start reading it, it doesn't start with a car crash. I did have some people actually. It's funny you you started our discussion with it because I had people tell me like you got to start with the car crash. I'm like no, no, no I don't want to do that. Um, 
so the basic gist is this, you know, we know PayPal today. A lot of us use PayPal. And if we don't use PayPal, maybe we use Venmo, which is owned by PayPal. But PayPal back then was the fusion of two companies. One company was called X.com and it was founded by Elon Musk. And another company was called, well, it was originally called BuildLink. Then it was called Convinity. And that was co-founded by, among others, Peter Thiel and Max Levchin. And th- there's, there's a kind of long story about how they both get created. But then the, the place where they intersect is the fall of 1999, uh, the fall and winter of 1999. They start to compete. And what they're competing about is basically like, can I get more user growth than the company down the street? And I mean down the street, literally. They're actually just blocks from each other on University Avenue in Palo Alto. So they're competing. And you can imagine, this is like, these are tech titans today. You know, they're very competitive today. They were very competitive back then. And so they're in this like knockdown, drag out fight for user growth uh, with, for their respective companies. And at, at some point, the idea of a union, of a merger starts to kind of get in the ether. Um, not everybody is, is supportive of it. Frankly, like a lot of people are opposed to it. But Peter and Elon are starting discussions about what would happen if we just combined our user bases, combined our companies, would we be better off? And in the course of that, that process, they have to go meet with X.com's investor, Mike Moritz, who was at Sequoia Capital. And because, you know, Elon had had a prior success and he had made some money, he had bought himself this incredible piece of automotive engineering called the McLaren F1. And I can actually get into the McLaren F1, but just for the, for the moment, he had bought this McLaren F1. And so he offers to give Peter a ride to Sand Hill Road for this meeting with this venture capitalist. And he picks him up and they start driving. And the way Peter described it was really funny. He's like, it was like a Hitchcock movie. Like we're supposed to be talking about this meeting that we're going to go have, right? But all we're doing is talking about the car because the car is amazing. And at some point, they they basically reach a place like they're kind of coming off the highway. And Peter says something to the effect of, you know, obviously some of these memories are blurred with time. But I talked to both of them about this memory. So I have it, I have it as about as accurate as you're going to get. So what Peter allegedly said, somebody's like, well, what, what can this thing really do? Meaning like, what can the car really do? And Elon's like, let me show you. And so he essentially like he, he floors it. And all they remember is kind of the chaos that happened next, right? Which is the car kind of, they, they had to swerve to avoid hitting somebody in front of them. But in swerving, they hit an embankment. The car spun the way, the way that Elon described it was it spun like a discus. And then it smashed to the ground. And, you know, the thing about the McLaren, and this is where I'll, like, I'll do the 20 seconds of nerding out, is when the McLaren was designed, it was not designed to be like just another sports car. When it debuted, someone described it as like an iconic event in the history of the car, right? They sort of said like, like the entire history of automotive engineering is like pre-McLaren and post-McLaren. Because basically what had happened is they had set out to design the world's fastest like road, like best production car ever, right? Um, And so that was an interesting ambition. But what it means is that the car doesn't have a lot of what makes cars drivable. Stability systems, traction control, all the things you and I take for granted in a car are not in the McLaren. Why? Because those things add weight. And if you add weight, it slows the car down. So what they wanted was just like a ridiculous motor, like tons of power and no weight because that gives you speed. That makes it difficult for like an ordinary person to drive the car. And, you know, I would say just in his defense, a bit in his defense, 
there, I, I sort of document this in the book, there were multiple McLaren crashes, like from people you know. Rowan Atkinson, the British actor who plays Mr. Bean, he crashed the McLaren, his McLaren twice. There was actually an entrepreneur a year before Elon's accident, a British entrepreneur, very similar circumstances, was killed and all the passengers in his car were killed because the McLaren hit a tree. And so you have this car that's like finicky and difficult to drive. And, you know, Elon is like kind of like trying to show what power it has and they get into this car accident. Now, miraculously, and this is the part that makes it kind of the reason we can smile about it is because they both obviously survive and they get out of the car it's totaled and they both still go to the meeting with the venture capitalist right <laughs> and according to somebody else who was at the meeting they didn't even mention the fact they were in a car accident right? which is kind of unbelievable and so you have this moment and i, I think I, I end the section with a really with a line you know from peter that was trying to he was being funny he was like you know i had achieved liftoff with elon just not in a rocket and elon's line about it was well obviously peter wouldn't be driving with me again um, and so both of them took some humor out of this situation. I think, you know, it, I, I, you could sort of stretch the metaphor further than maybe people should, but I wanted people to understand this moment because, you know, history could have been very different in that moment. Like everything we take for granted that came in PayPal's aftermath, obviously like would have disappeared if they had been killed or injured or if something had gone wrong. Um, so, you know, it's fortunate that they both survive, but that is the story that you were talking about. And I would be part of it is you want readers to have a sense of who these people are and kind of what they what they enjoy. And I think one of the things that people underappreciate is um, the McLaren was a piece of automotive engineering. It was like actually like it was sort of like like think about it, it was like a, like, um, you know, it was like a supercomputer. It was like this thing that that had every detail very well considered, you know, every idea about the car had been thought through. So it wasn't that Elon was buying just like a Ferrari or a Lamborghini or some expensive toy, right? It was actually that he was kind of invested in the same way that a lot of writers about cars were at the time and just what an amazing triumphant engineering feat this was. Right. And um, the reason why they're heading to this venture capitalist office is because they need to discuss a merger in part because they're burning through cash because they've stumbled on this concept of viral marketing. And this was somewhat new uh, back then. But the idea was like, how do you get new customers? Well, why don't you just pay them? You give them an incentive. And PayPal pioneered this along with X.com. They were just paying folks to use their new um, online uh, email payment service. And that that's very effective, but that burns through a lot of cash. Um, tell us about that. Tell us about how they came across that concept and why that was unique and, and why these two players were both uh, looking uh, at that to, to build their user uh, growth. Yeah, so it's one of the places that I spend a lot of time on in the book. And the reason is because, you know, the surface layer of PayPal is actually very simple. It, it's emailing money and, and the way that... <laughs> Actually, now that I'm thinking about it, the way that Elon described it was really funny when I was interviewing him. He said, you know, it, he said, it's just moving like one database entry to another. It's super simple. My kid is 12. He can do it. Right. Right. Um, and, and I thought that was pretty, it was a good description. But but the, the reason that it's important is because the real challenge you have with a payments network like PayPal or any of its cousins is not creating the thing, it's actually getting people to use the thing, right? Which is sort of referred to in tech parlance as product market fit. How do you achieve product market fit? And that's a real challenge in the late 90s and early 2000s for a few reasons. One, internet connections are super slow. 
So your products like don't work as quickly as they do now, right? Meaning like we have an instant feedback loop with a lot of our products. We open up an app, it opens, we're able to use it. You have to like dial up internet. I don't know if you remember these days, but like this was slow stuff. You had to wait for pages to load and like you could like go make a cup of coffee and then the website would load, right? And so that's one challenge. The other challenge is they're not the only players in the space. Confinity has launched a product called PayPal. X.com has its emailing money product, but every bank and financial services institution in the country wants to get in on this market. And they frankly have like a more natural tie-in to the market. The third reason it's difficult is because you know, Manny, let's say like I give you a kind of payment, right? This sort of like, there were all these proto experiments in other alternative currencies, beans, flus. If I send you 10 units of beans, right? Or 10 units of flus, if it has no value to you, you know, how are you going to like encourage other people to, to use it? So in the face of all of those challenges and many more, one of the things that happens is that both teams arrive on this idea that, well, what if we just used cash, we denominated in US dollars, and then we paid people to use our product, right? So sort of like the, the, the Elon analogy was, well, banks give away a toaster, but like, what if I just gave you the value of the toaster? I just gave you 20 bucks for signing up. At, on the Convinity side, they, the thinking was, look, if the average cost of customer acquisition for a bank is like 180 to $200, which is roughly what they estimated it was, and we're giving away $10 to each person, that's great. That's like where, as David Sachs said, he's like, really, we're saving $170. That's what <laughs> .com thinking was like back in the day. He kind of joked about it. Um, but the, the, the key thing that, that turned that from just like a one-time incentive into a more powerful viral growth mechanism was that they added an incentive if you encouraged other people to sign up, commonly referred to today as a referral bonus. But these ideas and models were still very much in their infancy in 1999 and 2000. So like, here's the way it works. I, Jimmy, decide I'm going to send you, Manny, $10 to sign up for PayPal. When you sign up, you get $10. And then I get another $10 because you successfully signed up. And this is really, at the time, it's sort of an amazing thing. They were drawing on the success of Hotmail, which was like an early email uh, email system. I'm right. uh, still around today. Um, and, and the idea was, what if we didn't, we didn't just incent the person who you know, you the, on the receiving end of the referral, we also incented me, the person who sent the referral. The, you can imagine what happens next. This makes it very lucrative for people to create fake email accounts, send money in, in dubious ways. Uh, there was one gentleman, Ken Howry, who was an early part of the team. He called it the largest transfer of venture capital to college students in human history. Uh, because what happened is people would basically like make fake emails send $10, move that $10 to a real account and you know profit from that and profit from the original referral fee. So they, they are in this contest. And the, the thing you mentioned to get back to your question, both X.com and Confinity are like bleeding money because of this, right? I mean, they've got, they've, I mean, imagine you're giving away money. It's like sort of you created your own gold rush, right? And so what people are doing is signing up really aggressively and money is going out the door without a clear sense of exactly how this is going to turn into a real business. And they've also stumbled across this very uh, small part of the internet that is craving their service. That are they're, they're going to be the the group that's going to power PayPal through um, their early growth, and that is eBay power sellers. Now, in your book, you talk about how they never 
they never sought this group out. They, ne- they didn't even target this folks. Um, and there's a point where they realize like, oh my gosh, these are our power users. This is where we have to focus. Tell us about how that happened, how they, st- they stumbled on the eBay power users as, as their core group of customers that they needed to focus on. Yeah, I think it's, it's actually like one of my favorite stories in the book. And the reason is because it, it shows you how random success can be uh, with these digital products and with even with whole companies, right? Because basically, if you were to trace PayPal back, you would trace it back to this moment of total accident and serendipity, right? Like, that's not the whole story, but it's a big part of the story. And the, the basic gist of it is this. At the time, one of the internet success stories of this kind of dot-com mania was eBay. We still have eBay today. But eBay back then was like, like what considered to be this kind of like glittering internet star. And one of the reasons is they had built a very successful marketplace for auction buyers and sellers, and they didn't have to hold any inventory or deal with any shipping or deal with any logistics. So they were just collecting fees on transactions that they brokered, right? Kind of like Airbnb, right? Like if you can play that role, if you can generate a new market, that's a very powerful place to be. They were also profitable from day one, which was not true for a lot of internet companies. Even when they took outside investment, famously, the, they just took the money from the outside investors and stuck it in the bank and never touched it. They never had to use the outside capital, as far as I know, in any substantial way. So here's the thing. They built a market, but they were relatively hands-off. They were connecting buyers and sellers, but part of remaining hands-off is deciding, you know what, Manny and Jimmy... You guys decide how you're going to pay. If you want to pay with cash, mail the cash. If you want to use a check, use a check. If you want to use a money order, use a money order. But we're not going to tell you how you should make the payment. That leaves room open for a payment services system like Convinity's PayPal or X.com. Because what's happening is, you know, eBay buyers and sellers, like they're still reconciling so many of these transactions in a very manual, very cumbersome way. Uh, Max Lemchin commented on Twitter the other day. He said, like, there were so many eBay transactions where people were sticking money in envelopes and sending them around, right? But like, that meant that here's what that means. You close a digital auction. I bid on an item you're selling, right? I bid on a, on a painting. I, I win the bid. Now I have to take time to like put the cash in the envelope or the check in the envelope. I mail it to you. There's a delay. You have to make sure that the check is good or deposit the cash, right? Then you send out the package. There's another delay. Then I have to get the package and make sure that it's authentic. A third delay. What PayPal was doing was solving for the, at least the payments part of that. Because what I could do is I could enter your email address in and pay you what I owe you for the painting. And there was like a system that was there to make sure that the money was good, or at least mostly, we'll get to fraud later. But that was what PayPal did is it fixed this very broken part of that payment services. And what happened is that eBay power sellers and the eBay community in general was a very passionate, let's call them passionate (laughs) community. They had message boards. Anytime a new service or product came out that was helpful to their auction services business, people in the eBay community would know about it. And by the way, I mean eBay users. Like eBay executives would learn later, but eBay users kind of created their own systems and solutions. When they discover X.com solution and they discover Convinity's PayPal, they get very excited about it and it starts to take off. The thing I mentioned at the beginning, the accident, here's how it happened. There was at one point a customer service request that came in from an eBay user to Confinity, and it was sent to the kind of like a generic customer service inbox. 
PayPal's people notice it. It gets forwarded up the chain. And David Sachs and a, a few other people notice it. And they, they go on eBay.com and they type in PayPal to see what's going on. And they discover, I think it was hundreds of auction listings where PayPal is being advertised as a service. And this was uh, as close to a Eureka moment as you could get, right? That actually like the discovery that this thing that you made is being used somewhere is a really powerful moment. There were debates that followed about whether they should go chase the eBay market or not. A lot of people did not want them to, but you can't argue with success. And so both companies launch headlong into this process of trying to basically like, I, the way I describe it in the book is it's like they owned eBay's cash registers. It's like eBay was the store and PayPal owned the cash registers. And, and th this is where David Sachs comes into play at Confinity. And because at that point, Confinity is originally a company that is doing Palm Pilot uh, payment transfers, and they've done a demo, and that's been all their press. Uh, um, that's been their press and, and their hype um, um, on, on that front. And then David Sachs sees this big growth coming from online payments, uh, in particular eBay users, and he says, "Hey, we're going to drop everything. We're going to go after this 100%." Um, and but he got some pushback from the team. Um, how, how did he make this call? How was he able to convince the, the Confinity team to go along with him on this, on this call? You know, I think he's one voice of many. Um, the, so, so I should say, he's, he's obviously sort of like, look, this is like a real use case for our product. Like uh, the users on eBay are actually like using this thing we created. Um, Luke Nosick is another person who's early in the company who says, this is like a, a very concentrated market. Uh, there was one story about how he drew all these little dots on a board. And he said, like, if the internet is dots that are kind of all over the place, eBay is a cluster of dots in a really small part of the internet. And if we could dominate that, we could grow to other things. Right. The person who doesn't exactly like the fact that eBay is, um, is kind of like the place the product has taken off is the CTO, Max Levchin. Um, he, he's, he at one point... You know, there were, uh, I should write in the book about how he made some efforts to sort of like block the eBay IP addresses so that the product couldn't be used. Because in his mind, the company's mission was mobile person-to-person -person payments. They wanted to make money transfer happen on Palm Pilots over the infrared port. This whole like emailing money thing was just a backup system to that. But very quickly, he, the board, everyone else in the company kind of recognized, look, they're growing you know, they're compounding every day, meaning the total number of users is increasing so much so fast that you kind of can't ignore that success. And at the time, just again, to, to what I said earlier, getting one of these businesses to take off was so hard, right? And so the fact that you're having organic growth that's virally driven, that you, it, it just happened, you didn't try to win this market, it's an amazing thing. And so very quickly, everyone kind of comes around to the idea, like we've got to figure out how to goose this growth. And right away, what happens is they start to build tools that are catered to the eBay audience. And it does actually meaningfully help to move the, 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 the growth. What it does though, is it puts PayPal in kind of direct competition with eBay. And there's a many years battle that ensues over kind of basically like, like eBay obviously doesn't want this parasite on its platform and PayPal's fighting for survival to stay on the platform. And so a lot of the, the fun stuff in the book is around how did, how did PayPal succeed and how did eBay, what moves did eBay make to try to thwart them? Very neat. So at this point, they have a good sense of where product market fit lies after 
getting started in different areas. They're they're following the signal from the marketplace. I think that just tell that's a good lesson in terms of put something out there and just be very sensitive to see where the demand is coming from and then just double down on that. And so X.com and Confinity come together in a merger. They raise a Series C together, uh, Sequoia's investing. And after that merger, is it smooth sailing after that? What happens after that merger? I'm assuming that they're going to like just, you know, they're going to have their leadership in place and just, you know, go to work. Is that what happens? No, it, it's actually, it, it's far from what happened. Um, and it's it's one of the funny things about this whole story is, you know, I, I had this um, <laughs> this person I interviewed, his name is Jack Selby. He was, I think, employee 13 at, Confinity, uh, which created PayPal. And Jack, my first, I sat down with him and I remember he was like a little skeptical, right? Because other people have written about the people in this story and there's a kind of lore around PayPal and all that. And he said, listen, the only way I'm going to kind of agree that to do this interview is if you appreciate that we basically went from near failure to near failure, that the, that the thing that people don't understand is just how hard it was, even after we had like the initial user growth. Uh, he said, that's kind of the only thing that like I ask of you is if I sit down for this, don't make this seem like it was easy and don't ignore the fact that like we almost went under a bunch of times. And so I think that's kind of like my, my sort of global thought on it is, oh my God, the merger itself was was difficult. The post-merger period was difficult. The the summer was difficult. The, you know, the, the way I write about it in the book is if you were at Confinity, you went through three CEOs in three months. Um, you know, you are being defrauded uh, in the millions. The company is losing, you know, estimate, estimated around eight and a half to $12 million per month with around $60 million left in the bank, right? Um, they're, being they're being attacked. They're being attacked in the press. Uh, they have competitors. They also have a platform, eBay, that absolutely doesn't want them there. And so I would say it's actually like whatever the opposite of smooth sailing is, right? Like it's sort of like it's sort of like near shipwreck to near shipwreck. Um, and so I think the the thing that 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 I would say is sort of that I take away from it, and that hopefully comes alive in the book is you know, companies, all companies will face challenges. I had this person I interviewed who said to me, you know, what we had at PayPal was we faced really good challenges because if you don't face good challenges, you actually don't get to come up with clever solutions. And so a lot of what the next, let's see, we're, we're at mid 2000, a lot of what the next two years, two and a half years were for PayPal was just responding to all of the challenges I just described. How do you get in good with government? How do you make sure eBay doesn't boot you off the platform? How do you deal with fraudsters? How do you combine a young team that basically doubled in size overnight? How do you make sure that you're dealing with the fact that you can't raise money? Because the other thing we didn't talk about is in March of 2000, the stock market starts its decline. And so you don't have one challenge, like all these, all these crazy challenges. And so it's anything but smooth sailing. And that right after that merger, as you mentioned, you go through three CEOs in three months. You have Bill Harris, who in your book you write, it was really insistent that this merger had to happen. He's like sort of pushing the merger. And then um, then Elon takes over as CEO. And then after a short period, Elon uh, resigns as CEO in kind of a, you know, a, a, a tough fashion. He's on a honeymoon when he gets the call that, that they don't want him to be the CEO anymore. Um, 
talk to us about how the PayPal leadership team was able to weather all of that drama and still survive this turbulent period. Very tough problem to solve. Um, and they have this leadership um, drama going on, but they're still able to to um, uh, to build a great product. How, how does that happen? You know, it's it's a great question. I think a big part of the reason is, you know, I didn't just interview the people at the top. I interviewed people at all levels of the company. And one of the things that becomes clear when you interview the people who, let's say, were like just one rung below the senior ranks or kind of in the middle ranks, the people who are doing the work, right? One, one of the things that becomes clear is I, I had this, this interview I did with this uh, w- like brilliant person on the product team named Denise Aptekar. And Denise, I asked her about the CEO's things. And I said, you know, this must have been really hard for you. And she said, kind of. But her line about it was something to the effect of, you know, we sort of had all this Michigas going on, like at the top. And we just learned to kind of ignore it because there was so much to do and so many challenges we were facing when we arrived at work that I couldn't really worry about who was CEO that day. And I thought that was actually a pretty telling comment that one of the interesting things about the challenges is that the challenges meaning leadership transitions is that they kind of became background noise. Um, For a lot of people who worked at the company, they had like a very discreet problem they were trying to solve. And so they would just apply themselves to solving that as opposed to like worrying about who was in charge that day. I I have, you know, there's other kind of people who mentioned that as well, but part of, I would say the other thing is like the way they survived is the company was also successful. So in the face of leadership challenges, right? So if you have a CEO challenge and you're not making money or your user growth is in sharp decline or you're facing some other headache, right? You don't have anything else to kind of hang your hat on. Like it's sort of like the only thing you can focus on is leadership turnover. At PayPal, what you had was you had a, a basically a full year where the product is growing so fast. The customer service issues are so significant. The fundraising issues are so consequential that you just have to like deal with those. You can't actually argue or, or kind of play politics about, you know, sort of who's at the top. Not that that didn't happen, but that it became secondary. I, I didn't include this in the book, but I interviewed this designer. His name is George Ishii, which I had included. I might include it in the paperback, but he had this great sort of like thing where I, I asked him about, um, his title. And I asked him, you know, like, sort of how did you determine like leadership and seniority and all that stuff? And he said, you know, he's like, we, we really didn't talk about it all that much. He said, I know it's important, but he said, the, the thing you have to understand is a lot of the arguing over who is VP of what or director of what falls by the wayside when you think the company is going to like fall apart every day, unless you work really hard. And he said, so actually what we had was we had all these unifying challenges, meaning the challenges brought the team together and it kind of kept some of the bickering to a, a relatively low boil. In terms of the the Elon coup, which obviously I spent a lot of a lot of time on, I talked to him about. He's you know he's able to to extract comedy out of it today. It was a pretty painful moment in his life, but he was very funny and very gracious. And I should also say very honest. Like the interesting thing is he didn't he didn't run away from talking about it. I didn't have to pry it out of him. We we were in this conversation. We naturally got to the point where we started talking about it, and he was ready to go right because he had learned a lot from it. And as painful as it was, it did teach him sort of lessons that he applied later. I would also say that, that, that what I come to understand later is that the, the, the differences of opinion in the team at the very top were differences in strategic vision. They weren't personal differences, really. It wasn't like Max Levchin really liked Elon, as did Peter. And by the way, the way you know that is they're all in touch today and they all sort of do various things together today, right? And so 
you don't have a situation where it's like, no, I just don't like this person. It's actually that they thought Elon had a vision for the company that was bigger than what the company could handle. He wanted PayPal or what he called X.com with PayPal as a product. He wanted X.com to run the financial world. He wanted to be involved in banking, mortgages, lines of credit, insurance, anything money did. He believed, well, we could do it faster and more efficiently with X.com. For the, for the Confinity alumni, for Elon and Peter and their team, they saw one successful product, which is person-to-person money transfer. And they also knew it was going to be hard enough to take that product and make it successful. So we've got to jettison all these other things we're working on and just focus on this one product. And I think the important thing to remember is that, it's a, that the, the ouster of Elon happens because of a difference in strategic vision. Now, in the aftermath, both sides actually concede. They were like, look, you know, there's probably a way to make Elon's vision work, right? Um, and, and, and Elon sort of said, like, look, the outcome was fine for everybody involved. I sort of understand what they did, kind of. Um, even if I disagreed with it, I understand why they did what they did. And I think there's, there's a piece of this that's about difference in strategic vision and risk tolerance. So one of the things that, that many people played back to me is they said, look, Elon had a huge appetite for risk. Like he was willing to bet the farm to bring his visions into reality. And it is a quality that attracts incredible people to work for him that makes some of those big visions come to life. But it also is really scary. And if you think about the context of that period, the market has collapsed. Elon has had a prior financial success with Zip2, but Peter, Max Levchin, Reid Hoffman, David Sachs, they don't have that. They did not exit a startup the way that he did years ago. And maybe that affects their, their willingness to take risks and some of, take on some of these like, bigger ideas that Elon had about X.com. So I think it's important to add like nuance to this because you know the honeymoon stuff is well covered. Yes, it, they did it during his honeymoon and while he was on a plane and they went to the board and it's sort of famous and dramatic. And I don't hide from the drama. I mean, I include that just because I think it's important. But it is also important to remember that it is a substantive difference of opinion and it's based on a difference of strategic vision and risk tolerance. I think that's a, a great point. We we look at Elon as someone that has great vision, uh, paints this big picture of where he's going. He wants to put someone on Mars. He, he's trying to save humanity from a catastrophe here on Earth. He needs to tra- We need to transition from fossil fuels. These big visions, and everybody likes that. But um, when you're on the ride with him, sometimes that can be somewhat jarring. And this is an example where, like, because uh, because other folks weren't uh, on board with the same risk appetite, it didn't really pan out. It pans out with Tesla later on with SpaceX, but not here at PayPal. I think that's right. I think the other thing is... Um... I think they're, you know, you have to, I, I, I didn't, I didn't write about Tesla or SpaceX. We talked about it kind of briefly in my discussions, but it wasn't, it wasn't the, the focus of my book. There are other people who have covered those, those topics and I don't understand them well enough to know how kind of how, how high the risk was at different moments, right? That's like a history for someone else to, to come on your show and talk about what I, what I do know is that in the summer of 2000, the perception was that the mix of fraud and credit lines combined with the fact that the NASDAQ was basically tumbling day after day led some people on the team to conclude that the risks that Elon wanted to run were too great. Now, for Elon's part, what he said is, I didn't want a small win. I didn't want to do just person-to-person money transfer because I already had 
one successful internet company. So it was sort of like, why would I just want the same level of scale of win again? That would kind of not, that would defeat the point, right? And I think that that's where the differences reached ahead. And in, you know, late September, um, he's on his, his honeymoon and they make a move uh, against him to the board, sort of threaten mass resignation. It's a very difficult moment in the lives of the people who live this story. Um, but, but, and this is important, like, you know, later, Peter Thiel is among the people who invest very early in SpaceX. Right. And so it's not just support or, or kind of agreement with Elon in that spirit. It's actually, it's actually that he ends up like supporting him in this very specific and and so it, it is a it's a vote about as powerful a vote of confidence you know investing in someone else's company a absolutely and jimmy you've alluded to this um already but i think it's easy to underappreciate how big of an issue fraud was for paypal you write about this this was an existential threat if they did not get their hands around the fraud that was happening on the paypal network um, it, it could have easily gone the other way. Uh, help, help us think about that. Help us appreciate how big of a risk that was for, for PayPal story. Yeah, so, so it, you know, um, I'm trying to figure out the best way to describe it. I'll, I'll use a quote from the book, from Reid Hoffman. His line about it, which is just like amazing, is he says, we could have been standing on the top of the building like throwing burning wads of $100 bills over and we would have been spending money less fast than we were based on like fraud and all the other things that were happening on the platform. And so you have a situation where, so like, again, take a step back. You build a successful payment services company and it's partly based on kind of bonuses leading to user growth. But what you have to contend with is the fact that in many cases, like someone might buy an item and then they may say, oh, I never got the item, even if they did. Or you have someone buying a fake item and then moving money around. Or you have like foreign bots that are essentially creating accounts to try to siphon hundreds of thousands of dollars out of different accounts. You have people stealing credentials. You have, there's like, you know, a bunch of different ways you can be defrauded. That, that, that fraud risk is 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 kind of it's it's not a zero to one right it's not sort of like you have like it's like fraud and you're defeated or like you have no fraud and you're successful um there's a person who wrote a post recently who said really thoughtfully like the best amount of fraud is non-zero meaning if you're not being defrauded you're also doing something wrong because it means you're not actually like a product or service that anybody wants to use paypal's issue is different which is it's got a certain amount of runway and it's got a lot of fraud on its platform so they need to come up with a creative set of fixes for all the problems I just described. And the interesting thing to cut to the sort of quick of it is every single person listening right now has at some point or another used one of the anti-fraud tools that PayPal created during these very early years. And I will give you an example. The first commercial application of CAPTCHA tests was at PayPal. And the reason that it was developed there was because armies of these kind of robot robotic programs were creating fake PayPal accounts. And so the team needed to figure out like, wait, is John Smith like a real user living in Ohio or are they a fake person that's like gonna create an account so somebody else can get $10? The way that they devised this test 
to distinguish a human from a computer was called the CAPTCHA. They, they, there was an early version of it built at Carnegie Mellon, but the PayPal team developed their version on its own, applied it, and it brought that kind of fraud down considerably. We all still use it. We all still annoyingly have to like find fire hydrants and stoplights and stuff, right? And it's become a little bit more advanced. But PayPal is the place where a lot of these early fraud fighting techniques were built. And that's why the only, I think, reasonable conclusion about fraud, which is, by the way, like I think the most interesting thing about the PayPal story, I devoted several chapters to it because it's kind of like, you know, <laughs> mobsters and FBI agents and like hackers and all that stuff. Like it's a pretty cinematic thing. But the thing you have to take away from that is fraud could have been the thing that killed the company. But beating fraud is also the reason that PayPal is around today and none of its competitors are, meaning none of its competitors from that era have been as successful. That's really important. It was the challenge that actually created this massive opportunity to fix all the risks and, and that kind of fix all the problems and, and take all the risks that other entities weren't willing to take on. Spot on. Um, you're right. It sort, sort of acts as a moat of source. Like if you can't solve the fraud problem, then you're not going to be able to uh, be successful in this space at um, at a high volume um, type of state. Like it just it just comes with the territory, and if you're gonna be in the space, you got to solve that well. Um, and they've they came up with some very interesting innovations. You also mentioned some other ones. I kind of say that I really appreciated how much detail you went into on that section. I think that's something that you could have easily uh, just kind of provided a high level overview of it, of overview of. Um, but the depth that you went into, you you, you covered the, the algorithms, you talked about them implementing the first instance of a decision tree um, in production. You talk about some of the, 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 the engineers that came on board and how they had zero background in financial services, but they had these mathematical backgrounds and and, and they put them to use and, 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 and put them to work and solve these problems. So I got to say, you did a great job in making that interesting. And, and, and I appreciate that. Well, thank you. You know, I, yeah, I would say the, the only thing I would add to that, and I appreciate it is, I, you know, it like helps to cook with the right ingredients, they say, right? And I just, I had both people that I interviewed who were super interesting and just like very, like they were like characters out of a novel. Um, I also had, so like one example is like there was this Marine named John Katonic who becomes a lead fraud fighter at the company. And John is like, you know, he's a cut from central casting. He like drives motorcycles and he like had fought in the Gulf War. And then he comes back and he's figuring out what to do and he gets a computer and all of his Marine friends make fun of him for getting a computer. And then he ends up like figuring out like the internet, he keeps telling him like, guys, the internet's going to be huge. And they're like, ah, it's just a fad. And then he ends up becoming like the company's lead fraud fighter. But he's the person interfacing with the Secret Service and the FBI and, and other entities. And he's also, he calls himself, he said, um, I felt like I was, I was like the first sheriff to go after Jesse James, right? Because actually online fraud wasn't a big deal until the internet became a big deal. And so I had, I, listen to what I, I just described. I had an interesting character, right? Cut from central casting, an interesting premise or series of challenges, right? I had a context in which this thing is becoming really important. So I had, I was like, able to dive into an era of the internet where all these things we take for granted like secure transactions and like the ability to easily return goods and return goods this was all we've become accustomed to it we're sort of like oh this is like how the way the world is supposed to work but it really didn't work that way back then um 
Jimmy, talk to us about eBay. Like we, 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 we've spoken about this offline, but you know, it, I, I, my, my feeling is that if you were going to make a movie out of this, I feel like eBay has got to be the villain, unfortunately, the big bad guy. And in part because PayPal is playing in eBay's sandbox. eBay's facilitating all these transactions and you have these scrappy folks come along and just and then bolt on their payment services and they're becoming a very important part of the eBay experience. eBay tries to counter this. They go out and they acquire Billpoint and they want to integrate Billpoint um, uh, further into their platform. And that means they have to push PayPal out of the way. How is it that PayPal is able to survive being on someone else's platform and 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 those owners being so antagonistic to the PayPal service? How how does that happen? How, how does eBay not completely shut down PayPal? You know, it is the the great question that hovers over the entire story. Is you know you you have a company in PayPal that essentially had this usefully parasitic relationship with eBay. And eBay doesn't shut them down. And I had, I did, you know, I did something a little different with some of the sections in the book where I was writing about eBay because I didn't want to give them a one-sided treatment. If I just talked to David Sachs about eBay, you're only getting like one very specific kind of perspective, right? He's on the other side of what is an antagonistic relationship. So you can imagine what his thoughts about him are. I went out and found the eBay executives who were on the other side of that relationship. So I interviewed a couple of people. Uh, this person, Rob Chestnut, who was in a, a federal prosecutor who joined eBay. I interviewed this guy, Jeff Jordan, who joined eBay. Um, you know, I tried to interview as many, you know, like some of those key people as I could. There were some people who didn't talk to me, but, you know, maybe they'll talk to me now. Um, think of it, the, 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 the sort of logical way to think about it from eBay's perspective is what was the upside in shutting PayPal down at a certain point? So, you're eBay. You've built an amazing marketplace to connect auction buyers and auction sellers. To now, because of PayPal, Manny and Jimmy can like reconcile those transactions quickly and finish and move on to our next set of auctions, right? At a certain point, when they did not kill PayPal in the crib, meaning early, late 1999, early 2000, after a certain point, it made no sense to kill PayPal for a couple of reasons. One, and PayPal did a very good job of encouraging this, eBay's own users became such fans of the PayPal brand. And it would have been disastrous for eBay to like shut down PayPal because they, <laughs> they would do things like e PayPal would send out notes to like all of its users saying like eBay's done this terrible thing. You should call and complain or send notes or whatever. Um, so they, they basically had really loyal users and the users were brand agnostic to some degree. They were like, we like eBay for the marketplace, but we really like PayPal for the payment services. Great. That was one reason. The second is there was always this threat in the air during this era that some people who are listening will remember about antitrust. And so the government had gone after Microsoft and this is in the browser wars when, you know, this is like ancient history now, but basically like Microsoft had created the Internet Explorer browser. They had done some things allegedly to try to shut the Netscape browser down. But the, that led the government to investigate Microsoft and it led to these kind of like long, multi-years long things where like Bill Gates was like, you know, he had to like testify and stuff. There was a fear in like upper level management that, you know, and then PayPal encouraged this fear uh, that if they shut PayPal down, it could be perceived as anti-competitive. Um, now, the attorneys at eBay were also very candid. They were like, look, did they threaten antitrust offshore? It wasn't the scariest thing, but it was definitely something we were thinking about. The, the biggest issue, though, is the one I said earlier. 
if you shut PayPal down in 2001 or 2002, these transactions that are being very cleanly reconciled, or at least relatively cleanly reconciled, now go away. And you have like, users were just going to get pissed off and they were going to go on message boards and rant about it. And by the way, they did. Like I included a bunch of the rants in the book. These users were very, very vocal and they were very passionate because they were running small businesses, right? And so if you think about it from their perspective, like take the user's perspective, you're running a business, you're doing you know, thousands of dollars a month in transactions. And then all of a sudden eBay decides it's going to shut down the system that you used to do transactions. That's crazy. We can't do that. And so you have multiple equities here at stake, right? It's not so simple as saying like, why did you shut them down? Now, the counter argument would be they really should have shut them down like super early. Like if, if eBay had decided very early that it was only going to use its own native payment system, PayPal would never have gotten off the ground. It was impossible. Like if eBay had just said in the summer of 1999, here's how eBay users are going to do payments, there would have been no room for PayPal to, to, to grow and to become what it became. I also love how you describe the eBay power users. They seem like a very interesting bunch. I think you can write a whole chapter on, on them alone. They have some interesting characters. Like the heat that that PayPal and eBay will get if you piss piss off this crowd is was pretty intense uh so that was pretty cool um i think the other point that, you, that, that we have to mention too is that bill pay the alternative that ebay wanted to to use for folks wasn't as good so there were there were times when they they tried to push users hard into bill point and the experience was really really bad and so you've got immediate pushback from these these ebay power users I think that's right. And it's it's an important point, which is PayPal built a fundamentally better product. And not just not only that, they didn't just build a better product. One of the things that I discovered in the course of my research is that the team was very focused on like if an eBay user had an issue or a complaint that was something that could be fixed in the product, there was a company-wide focus on getting changes made quickly so that users would feel like the, the PayPal was responsive to them. And so I interviewed this um, person who did customer service. It was based in Omaha. And she said, you know, one of the things that was remarkable was when a customer would call and have an issue and it was something that needed a technical fix, they, the team in Palo Alto would move so quickly to make that fix happen. And what eBay users would do is as soon as changes happened, those changes would like become the subject of discussion on big message boards where like all these power sellers were hanging out and trading notes. And over time, what happens is they recognize, look, PayPal just built a better product. Like I, it moves, they move more quickly to make changes. They are, it's a, it's a cleaner user interface. There was one point at which PayPal was able to basically kind of like figure out how to alert its own, it's, its users faster than eBay when an auction ended. And then somebody pointed out, they're like, that was like the height of achievement. It was like when we figured out, oh, we can alert users more quickly because that meant that people clicked over to PayPal that didn't click over to eBay to finish the transaction. And so fundamentally, I mean, if you're really looking at it, the team has built a great product. It continues to improve the product. The users love the product. eBay can't shut it down. And, and, and um, you know, the, the goal, well, one of the goals was to, to, to exit and um, uh, Teal and company had a sell, uh, a sale to eBay in mind. And what really cemented this was, uh, was PayPal going public um, in, in 2001. 
um, and and that sort of providing a mark for eBay to, to counter. Talk to us about PayPal ultimately going public and how that facilitated the sale to eBay. Yeah, so there's this um, in in early to in February of 2000, PayPal goes public under the you know the ticker PYPL. And it's a big moment. It's one of the first tech IPOs after the dot-com bubble has burst. It's a risky time to go public. We're talking post 9-11. There's still a lot of skepticism about technology, hangover of the whole dot-com bubble bursting. But they go public and they actually have a really successful IPO. And what that did that was really important is it created a clear market price for what was a private company so that eBay knew exactly what it was worth and then they could pay a premium on top of that. That there had been three or four rounds of negotiation between PayPal and eBay prior to this. But the, one of the difficulties was always like, well, what is the value of this? Like, what is the value of our own cash registers, right? And so it becomes this area where there's real bitterness and real discord and some really complicated negotiations, some of which I captured. And after they go public, there's one more kind of failed negotiation. And then in July... After a, an event called eBay Live, two leaders, one from PayPal and one from eBay, Jeff Jordan from eBay and David Sachs from PayPal, kind of come together for reasons that are in the book and say, look, like this competition's kind of gone on long enough. Like we're really like we're, we're, we, are, we are symbiotic companies and we ought to figure out if we can make a deal happen. And they were able to get a deal done. That acquisition is announced uh, just after 4th of July in july of 2002 it's closed by the fall of 2002 and you know there's many different ways to interpret it there are still paypal alumni who to this day are like angry about the acquisition um elon had thought like oh we should hold out for more money or like you're undervaluing the company which turned out to be right um there were people who also said on the other side though look look the team was burned out you basically spent four years four plus years fighting to keep this company alive and it wasn't productive fighting anymore and so that is the the end of the version of the story that I do is that immediately after the sale to eBay, because it is also the point at which many of the names that people will recognize and, and many others depart from the company and go on to, you know, go on to other things. Yeah. I mean, other things like start companies like LinkedIn, YouTube, SpaceX, Tesla, Facebook, Palantir, Yelp. Um, amazing, amazing. Um, so, so folks, highly recommend you get this book. It's amazing. You're gonna you're gonna breeze through it. I really enjoyed it. Uh, Jimmy, tell us what's next and how people can follow uh, what's coming up uh, with you in the book. Yeah, you know, it's a it's a great question. You know, obviously, like what I just described and what we just talked about is a whole bunch of very cinematic and dramatic things. And so there is a you know there's a push from some uh, very distinguished producers and a, and a really accomplished showrunner named Mark Goffman to kind of turn this thing into a, into a limited series. I, I don't, I have sort of like a passing uh, participation in that in the sense that I wrote a bunch of material that I think could be useful fodder, but the the sort of joke in Hollywood, right? It's like the best, the best book writer is a dead book writer. They don't want you to monkey with their, their particular thing. And I, I, I want to be as involved as they want me to be because obviously I have a lot of material in my head that did not make it into the book. But the next iteration of this, I hope, is a version of this on screen. Because the other part of this that's important is, you know, we, we have a, a number of these figures in, in our kind of lives today and in the press today. But this, is, this moment of their lives is like when they're just getting their start, right? So everything's a bit more tentative. It's a bit more cautious. It's, a bit, it's just a bit like harder, right? 
And so I kind of like those stories. I was drawn to those. I'm drawn to that sort of storytelling, obviously. I think it'd make for cool TV fodder. Um, and then I'm going to I'm gonna put the paper rack out in the spring. I'll probably make some slight modifications and change the cover around a bit. Um, and then I'm also doing a lot of just chats like this because I think, you know, it, it's fun to talk about these things. It's fun to connect with readers. And so for my part right now, I'm, I'm kind of all founders all the time. Awesome. And I know you're active on LinkedIn, on Twitter. I'll include links to Jimmy's details in the show notes. Jimmy, thank you so much for coming on the show. Greatly appreciated your commentary on the book and congratulations on the book. Amazing, amazing book. Well, Manny, thank you. This was, this was fun. 